The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good to be with you guys this morning. We are in the fourth week of our Jesus Is series. And I want to start by asking you a question. Why are we doing this series? Many of us know a lot about Jesus. I know if I were to survey the room, if I were to ask you about various stories about Jesus, you could give me the right answers. You could kind of recite story to story to story. And so the question is, why are we doing another series in the Gospels and about Jesus? This past week, I actually um, did some counting. I actually counted up 120 messages over the last eight years at this church that are all from the Gospels. That's like two and a half years worth of messages in the Gospels. And so the question becomes, why are we spending more time in the Gospels when we've covered this a lot over the last eight years? And I was reminded um, also, if you think about the titles of these messages, um, I'm just going to warn you up front, there is nothing all that groundbreaking about the titles we're going to give you week to week. First week was Jesus is the God-man. Second week was Jesus is compassionate. Um, last week, what was that word Gary introduced us to? Jesus is the ultimate doppelganger. So that's kind of groundbreaking, I guess, right? Um, but the question, why are we doing this series? I'm reminded of a quote I once heard by Dallas Willard. He said, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Something can be so familiar that it becomes unfamiliar to us. And I think this is true in how we relate to Christ, but also true in how we relate to other people. Uh, a few years back, my wife and I were on a nice romantic date, and I was trying to be smooth, and I looked across the table, at the dinner table at her, and um, looked into her eyes, and I said something like, uh, I love your blue eyes. And she looked at me funny, and I said, what? I gave you a compliment. You're supposed to respond. And she said, my eyes are green. <laughs> and so that led to a discussion. And I think my defense was, well, you know, green's just like a different shade of blue, you know? It's, it's on the same color spectrum. And so if you're going to comment on your wife's eyes, you better know what color they are, right? But someone can be so familiar to us, they become unfamiliar to us, and we take them for granted. And I think the same thing can happen in our walk with Christ. This can happen to us spiritually. We become so familiar with Christ, he becomes unfamiliar to us. And so my hope, as our hope as a church, as we go through this series, Jesus' series, is that you start to see Christ with fresh eyes, with a newness, with a reinvigoration in your walk with God. And this is why I love that you're hearing these testimonies. Have these testimonies been amazing each week? You're going to hear more today as well. Um, but it, what's so cool about the testimonies is that whenever you hear someone else's testimony, it invigorates your faith because it's like you're seeing Christ through someone else's eyes. You're seeing Christ through someone else's vision. So this is what I love about the stories you're hearing week to week. And this is our hope for this series is that um, you'll see Christ through someone else's eyes. You'll see Christ with a fresh perspective as we go through this series. That's our hope. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew 11 verses 18 and 19. We'll start there. And in this passage, Jesus is addressing the religious leaders and the crowds. And we are at a point in the Gospels where the religious leaders have rejected Jesus. They have rejected John the Baptist. 
And there's conflict ensuing as a result of that. So we're going to start just in verses 18 and 19 in chapter 11 of Matthew. Verse 18, it says, For John came neither eating... For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So John the Baptist lived a different kind of lifestyle. The Bible said he had clothes made out of camel's hair, that he had a leather belt, he lived in the desert, he ate locusts and honey. Can you imagine the breath on that guy as he preached? So any movie, it's true, if if there's any kind of casting call for a movie about Jesus, they will make the crazy guy play John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, depicted in film, is always the guy with the crazy hair, the big long beard. He's got bugs swarming around him. He's got honey caked in his beard. Like, he just looks like a crazy man. And so because of the lifestyle he lived, the religious leaders said he had a demon, And he may very well look like he had a demon. But they said he had a demon because he lived this different kind of life. He was also someone who lived an ascetic lifestyle, meaning he did not go to dinner parties. He did not go and drink wine with everyone else. And the people, the leaders, they wrote him off, didn't listen to him. Jesus comes, and Jesus does the exact opposite of John. Jesus is the one who's going to dinner parties. He actually is drinking wine, and they give him the same response. They reject him. They cast him off. At the beginning of this series, you saw a video of street interviews where people were asked, Jesus is, fill in the blank, and you got all kinds of responses in that video. In that day, if you would have gone to the streets of Capernaum or that area of Galilee and asked the religious leaders, and you said, Jesus is, fill in the blank, they would have said, he is a glutton and a drunkard. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Now, don't write that down. That's not today's title, by the way. <laughs> Who was about to write that down? Show your hand. But I think it's important for you to know this is what the Pharisees would have said about Jesus. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, you know, well, well I get accused of that all the time, right? And you and I can't play the card of like, well, that means I'm more like Jesus than I thought I was. Um, but Jesus is being accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And they didn't stop there. They also said he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this is our title for today. Jesus is a friend of sinners. You can write that one down. (laughs) He's a friend of sinners. Keep in mind, in this passage, Jesus is the one who is speaking. He has heard their accusations, and Christ is the one who is speaking. And so I think to this accusation, Jesus would have said, I accept it. It's true. I am a friend of sinners. And I think we know that when you flip over to Matthew chapter 9. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, looking at verses 9 through 13. And all this takes place in Capernaum. This takes place in the area of Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee. Verses 9 to 13, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I think whenever you and I read the Bible, we tend to gloss over these stories and forget how profound they are. Because you and I know of Matthew as, yeah, that's Matthew. That's the call of Matthew. He used to be called Levi, now he's called Matthew, and he was one of the writers of the Gospels. Yeah, what's the big deal? But we forget um, that in this section of Matthew, there are, um, this is when miracles begin. So there are several miracles in a row here in this area of Capernaum. And then we have this little story about the call of Matthew. It's only, what, a few verses. And there's nothing miraculous about it. It's just a you know, guy sitting in a tax booth. Jesus walks up and says, follow me. And the man gets up and he follows him. And nothing to see here. Nothing miraculous. Until you remember who Matthew was. Matthew was a tax collector. And he was one of the most, this was the most hated group of people among the Jews. And the Jews lived under Roman rule. The Romans recruited Jews. The Romans would use other Jews to um, collect taxes from other Jewish people. And so this was a way of oppressing the population. And so Matthew had signed up to be a tax collector. So he was seen as a traitor. They were despised among other Jewish people. I don't have to tell you that if you're at a dinner party and someone says, yeah, I work for the IRS, that positive comments will not follow, right? So imagine how unpopular someone that works there might be today. Now imagine someone like Matthew. So imagine the U.S. is occupied by a foreign army, and they're recruiting Americans to collect taxes. And anyone that signs up, you've got a chance to become rich. Because they would not only collect taxes, they would also skim off the top and charge extra to their own countrymen so they could get rich. And so they would oppress their own people. They were hated, they were despised by other Jews. And I know this story is kind of a short little four-verse story, but I want you to just imagine how this story may have played out. We're going to fill in some details this morning of how this may have played out. So you've got Matthew sitting at this tax booth waiting for the next person to stop by, and of course he was used to it by now. As each person would approach, they would normally just walk towards him with their head downcast, looking at the ground because they couldn't bear to even look at him. They would normally just take out their money and just lay it on the table and just give him that stare. That stare that said, how can you be a traitor? How can you oppress your own people? They'd give him that stare and then just walk away. And many people that came to him were former childhood friends. Even relatives would come to him to pay their taxes. When he'd walk through town, people would curse at him under their breath. And of course, he felt torn because, but he had to make a living. He had to find some way to pay the bills. So in his mind, it was worth it. It was worth the trade-off. It was worth the insults as long as he could get rich. He didn't care that he was exploiting his own people. And he soon discovered, however, that the only way to live with himself was to harden his heart towards his fellow countrymen. And the more they insulted him, he was affected less and less over time. And it wasn't just the common people that hated him. It was also the religious elite, the religious leaders. They despised him. They saw him as the ultimate traitor. 
Not only was he corrupt, but his association with the Gentiles and the Romans made him ceremonially unclean. They wouldn't even look at him, let alone speak to him. And so one day he is counting his money, and in the distance he sees a group of men walking towards him, and at first he thinks, this doesn't look good. This doesn't look good. People don't usually come in groups. They don't really come by themselves to pay their taxes. Maybe these guys aren't coming to pay me. Maybe they're coming to pay me back. And so his pulse begins to quicken as they approach. And as they get closer, Matthew recognizes one of them. And he recognizes it's Jesus the rabbi. Now he knew about Jesus. He'd heard about the teachings. He'd heard about some of the miracles. But most of the time, Matthew kept his distance because... The crowds made him nervous. And so he wondered in his own mind to himself what this was all about. This can't be good, he thought. Everyone hates me, especially the rabbis. And they said he was a sellout. And they were right. His only friends were other outcasts and tax collectors. But as these men approached, Matthew noticed something different. Jesus wasn't looking downcast, he was looking right at Matthew, and instead of a scowl on his face, there was a warm smile. And then Jesus said two words that would change Matthew's life forever. He said the words, follow me. That's it. And within seconds, Matthew felt all the fear and anxiety just rush out of his body. And he stands up, and he walks out of that tax booth. And his life would never be the same. This is a story of Matthew, formerly known as Levi. And what's interesting is, we're reading this story in the book of Matthew. So this is Matthew's personal testimony. If you'll notice, in other Gospels, he's still called Levi in the story. In this Gospel, he's called Matthew. I think Matthew wants us to remember that he's a new man. He's got a new name. And so he's changed by this encounter with Christ. And I want you to see just several things. The call of Matthew, I think, is profound on a number of levels. We're going to cover some of these this morning. First of all, this happens in Capernaum, which is by the Sea of Galilee. That means that there were lots of fishermen in the area. This this means that fishermen paid their taxes to Matthew. We also know that about seven of the twelve disciples were fishermen, And so Jesus calls Matthew, this tax collector, to be one of the twelve along with the men who probably paid their taxes to him. Can you imagine the look on their faces when Jesus calls this this tax collector, the man that they probably paid their taxes to, the man they saw as a traitor, And Jesus walks up to this man, probably with them, and says, come follow me. And you can imagine the look on their faces, how their hearts sank. Really? Jesus? This guy? Really? But here's what I love about this story. This story reminds us that where Jesus is present, some of the friendships aren't going to make sense. So Christ calls this eclectic group of people that shouldn't really make a lot of sense to the public eye. But where Christ is present, some of the friendships aren't going to make sense. I tell my students all the time down at the Outback with our high school students that where the gospel is present, the friendships aren't going to make sense. 
People will look at the friendships and say, it doesn't make sense that you and this person are friends. The only thing binding you is the gospel. This doesn't make a lot of sense to the public eye, but this makes sense when Christ is present, when the gospel is at work. And so Christ went out of his way to reach the outcast, to reach what's known as the sinner in that day. And that should be the same challenge to us, but I also want to remind you that on the other hand, we never engage in sin in order to reach someone. We never cross the line over into sin in order to reach someone else. Many years ago, I had a, um, a dad and I were talking, a dad of one of my students, and this dad, he was explaining to me how his son, he's kind of concerned about his son hanging out with the wrong crowd, and just concerned about where he was going and the things he was doing. And I think this, this dad said to me, he said, yeah, my son has been saying things like, you know, yeah, but, you know, Jesus spent all this time with all, he partied with all the sinners, man. That's what Jesus did. And this dad had a profound response. This dad said to his son, yes, but are you being Jesus to them? Are you being Jesus to your friends? Like when, when you go there, if you're going to be with them, are you being Jesus to them? And I think it's a profound question. Do we live with the kind of purposeful intent that Jesus lived with and the kind of purposeful intent he wants his followers to live with? The second thing I think we see in this passage is that the call of Christ is not an invitation to follow some principles or a philosophy, but an invitation to follow a person. Every other religion on the earth points to a set of principles or a philosophy of how to live. Christianity is not about following after some philosophy. It's about following after a person. Jesus does not walk up to Matthew and say, follow these principles. Follow this philosophy. This is the best way in which you should live. He says, follow me. It's personal. The essence of the Christian faith is that you are following, you get to follow a person. When you think about what it means to follow a set of principles, here's how you and I test out principles. If someone says to us, here, follow these these rules, these principles, we test them out, we try them out, and if they work, we keep following them. If they don't work, then we stop, we jump ship, and we bail. We test them out. When it comes to Christ, we talked about uh, doubt about a month ago, and one thing I wanted to get into, I didn't have time to get into it uh, a month ago, I'll get into it now, but when you follow a person, there are inherent doubts when you and I follow a person. But on the flip side of that, what that means is that you and I get to experience something profound. We get to experience trust. We get to experience faith. This is not possible when you're following after a set of principles or a philosophy. And so you and I get to follow Christ, and as we do that, there's this trust element that develops because we're following a person, not a set of principles. Thirdly, I think anyone who is a Christian can relate to this scenario with Matthew because you really really see a picture of surrender here with Matthew. He's just living his life. He's just sitting at the tax booth, and he is minding his own business And Jesus just walks into his life and says, follow me. And he feels the call to surrender his life to Jesus. And he gets up, he leaves his former way of life, and he follows after the Savior, the Messiah. Tim Keller writes, 
You don't come to Christ because you like what He says. You come to Him because of who He is. Then you grow to desire what He says. Every testimony I hear, I love hearing people's stories whether on this stage or whether it's in my office. I love hearing stories because you always hear this element of, I was just living my life, or I was just walking through life, or I was living here, living there, living in sin, whatever the case might be, and someone will say, and I just felt the call of Christ on my life, and I chose to follow him. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the essence of what it means to be a believer. And I think every Christian, every true Christian can relate to this idea that when you became a Christian, it wasn't about just adopting a principle or a philosophy. It was about following after a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so here we have the story of Matthew where he has spent his life laying burdens on people. And now he'll spend the rest of his life removing burdens as he introduces people to Jesus Christ. What I love about this story that shows me is that we know from other Gospels is that the house they're sitting in, in this passage in Matthew chapter 9, is actually Matthew's house. So Matthew goes from being called by Christ to now they're sitting in his house with other tax collectors and sinners, and he's introducing other people just like him to Jesus. And I think what I love about the body of Christ is you'll, you'll often hear people, whatever their former way of life was, that's who they feel called to reach once they become a Christian. So if someone is a former convict, they start getting a, a, a passion for prison ministry. If someone is a former drug addict, they get a passion for CR or substance abuse counseling, these kinds of things. If someone was, was in, in the, the sex industry in some way, they get a passion to reach people who used to be just like themselves. And Matthew is sitting in his home, reaching other people that, were just like, that are just like he used to be. This is also a reminder to us that you don't need to be a 20-year veteran of the faith to introduce people to Jesus. He goes from being a new follower of Christ to introducing other people to his Savior and does it pretty quickly. As we think about this passage, I want to let you see how this passage applies to three different kinds of people. The first I want to talk to is the, the unbeliever or the skeptic. And if, you're, if you consider yourself not a believer yet, and you're just skeptical of the whole Christian faith, and I'm going to guess this morning that, that you probably see Christians and the church as just kind of stuffy and arrogant and self-righteous. And in many ways, you're right. We can be like that. That is a correct assessment of us. But I want to challenge you this morning that you cannot blame Jesus for that. You can't blame Jesus for you seeing Christians that way. You can blame us. Like, please, please blame us. It's our fault. But you can't blame Jesus for that. Because Jesus reached out to the people in that society that were considered the outcasts, people that were considered the sinners of the culture, the sinners of the society. And so you can't blame him for that. You've got to, you can blame us. You can't blame Christ for that. And I'm going to encourage you today to look more intently at the life and the character of Jesus 
than you look at his church. Look more carefully at the life and character of Christ. If you're thinking about coming to know Christ, don't let our junk get in the way. But look at Jesus and who he was and his character and how he lived his life if you're going to evaluate whether or not you should become a Christian. The second kind of person I want to talk to is the person that's just like me, the prideful believer. This would be like the Pharisees. And in many ways, this is my testimony. This is my story. And in verse 13, look back at verse 13 again in in chapter 9. Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The Pharisees thought that strict observance of the law, meaning sacrifice, was more important than mercy, than showing mercy to sinners and outcasts. And I think what happens is we often, you and I, if we we grow up in the faith, we often divide the world into good and bad, big sins, little sins. And we tend to justify ourselves based on how we are doing in those areas. So we tend to divide the world and, you know, yeah, I I do some things, but not as bad as so-and-so. Or I I do some sins, but but not the big sins, not the, I do little sins. And so my my son, a few years ago, he, um, we're we're teaching about sin and what sin is and, and how it's not just actions, but it actually can happen in your heart. That's where the sin begins in your heart. And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, Daddy, he goes, you never sin, do you? And I said, oh, yes, you do. Yes, I do. Just ask your mom. <laughs> she can tell you. And I think when we're young, especially, we tend to look at the world as good people, bad people, big sins, little sins, and we justify ourselves based on how we keep score with that game. And so we're just good at hiding it. And this was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were just good at hiding it. Jesus says, those who are well don't need a physician. Now, he's not saying the Pharisees are well and don't need him. He's trying to point out with this ironic statement, he's trying to say that they're sick like everyone else. They're just good at hiding it. And so here's what Christ is saying. He's trying to say this, I believe. You sum it up this way. If we don't show mercy to the sick, meaning the sinner, the outcast, then we are the ones who are sick. If we don't show mercy to people that are different than us, have what in our minds are bigger sins than what we have, well, that's not really the case at all, then we're the ones who are sick. And so this really challenged me because I think of questions like, how do you and I respond to the moral failures of other people? If someone in your life just fails morally, how do you and I respond to that? If you or I fail morally, how do we respond to ourselves? Are you the kind of person, am I the kind of person that people want to share their problems with you? Are you approachable? Are we approachable? Are you someone that, that puts off this air of, of arrogance and self-righteous and you've got it all together and, and no one can really break into that mold are you someone who's approachable and people think that, yeah, if I have some major sin issues, I can go to that person and talk about it and they're not going to judge me? This was convicting to me as I studied this week. In fact, we see so much anger, I think, especially in our culture today. I've discussed this before from this stage. I'll say it again. There's so much anger flowing from 
Pharisee-type people towards those who we perceive as the sinner. And I read this quote by A.B. Bruce. He says this, When Jesus said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, he meant that it does no good to be religious but be full of pride, prejudice, harshness, hatred. We can go even further by saying that to be someone who claims to be of the truth and hold this line is far more detestable than that of those who were addicted to the coarse vices of the multitude. He's saying that to be like the Pharisees, just angry at the world for all of its sin, is actually worse than all the sins we're angry about. That one hurts. That's painful. And this is not just about how we view other people. This comes down to how we view ourselves. This is about underneath all this anger is a belief that I somehow deserve God's grace and mercy. But at the heart of the God, I want you to catch this. At the heart of the gospel, there is this paradox, and it's this statement. The only way to be worthy is to realize you are unworthy. The only way to be worthy before God is to realize your utter unworthiness before him. And the Pharisees didn't get that. And this is why I love the gospel, because some people see themselves as deserving, other people see themselves as undeserving, and the gospel cuts through both. The gospel reaches out to both kinds of people. And so if you're a Christian this morning and you're the latter, the kind of person I just described, who I want to address someone who might be the shamed believer this morning, you're a Christian, but you just can't get over your past. You're paralyzed by it. And I want to encourage you with some words from 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the Old Testament, the, the priest's job was to represent God to the world and to the Israelites. In the New Testament, we learn in Hebrews that Jesus became our high priest, our great high priest, and because of his work on the cross for us, we get to be his priests. We get to be his priests. Now, if you're like me, um, this means if, if you're a believer but living in shame, I want you to hear this next statement. Jesus doesn't just call us his friends, but he makes us his priests. This is what we get to do if you're a Christian. Jesus, look, if, if you're living in shame as a believer, Jesus doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just put up with you. He makes you one of his priests. Now, I know that word might scare some of you. You think of the word priest, you think of someone holier than thou, someone better than, someone who's on a pedestal. In fact, my daughter who's five... Um, we're at the oil change place a couple weeks ago, 
And we get there, well, we're about to get out of the car, and you know, the guy walks up and says, what do you want me to have, have done to your car? And so I'm getting out of the car. My daughter gets out of the back seat, and she looks at this man who I have no idea who this man is, and she says, my daddy is a priest. <laughs> I have no clue where she got, got that from. I never use that word around the house. And I look at the man embarrassed, just like, she's five. She has no idea what she's talking about. And I start thinking about it, though, and, you know, in a sense, I don't like the word, even the word pastor or reverend, let alone the word priest. But you start thinking about the priesthood of the believer. My daughter is right. I am a priest. But if you're a Christian, you're a priest. That means that you get to represent God to the world. So Jesus doesn't just call us his friends. He makes us his priests. He elevates us to priesthood status. And this is the priesthood of the believer. If you're a Christian, you're a priest. We get to represent God to the world. And that's true for you no matter what your past is. You've heard stories week to week from the stage. You're going to watch a video this morning of actually two stories. One person's name is Pat. One person's name is Amanda. Let's go ahead and watch this video. I grew up believing that God exists, and I had a loving home, loving parents, a loving brother. And sometimes that makes me wonder how I got so far lost. I was a rebel kid, rebel child. Drugs and alcohol were pretty much fluent in my family. My lowest point in my life was uh, when, I, when I was homeless in 2006 there in Elgin, Texas. Through some circumstances and things that happened during and after high school that I should have spoke up about and communicated and talked to somebody about, I didn't. And that filled me with shame and guilt, which sent me on a downward spiral. So whenever I graduated high school, I was already addicted to alcohol, and which led to the use of methamphetamines. I uh, started hitting the streets, and I was uh, actually staying behind a trash can. I had a, uh, I had a dog with me, and I was living right there in that trash can, behind that trash can, and uh, panhandling stores just to supply my habit. I remember it was 2006, October 2006, it was around Halloween, and uh, all the lights went out in Elgin, and uh, I knew something wasn't right, and I knew I needed some help. So I called my dad up, and I asked him, I said, Dad, uh, I said, I need some help. He said, what's wrong? I said, I'm living on the streets. I said, I'm, I'm homeless, man, I don't have nowhere to go. He says, well, I got some rules for you. Um, he said, I've got... You know, you're going to have to go seek some professional help if you want to come back home. I said, okay, I'll do that. So after five years of drug use, I had been arrested three times. And the third time, I was arrested federally. I, three days before that, I had overdosed on liquid ecstasy and was never taken to the hospital or any of that. Um, came to and was told that I had overdosed. And at that point, I was told by somebody that they couldn't take me to the hospital because they didn't want to be arrested because we were on the run from the federal police. And that they thought that they were going to have to throw my dead body in the yard. 
so that they wouldn't get caught. And it was in that moment that I realized that I was being viewed as not a person and not as a person of worth, but as trash, that I was literally trash. So I got, got into Austin Recovery, and uh, I'll never forget this counselor. He told me, he said, uh, he said, if I was going to ask him, I'll ask you one question. If you were your father, what would you tell yourself? And I said, well, I don't know. What would I, I mean, that's a trick question. He says, why don't you just tell yourself that you love you? And that's all I ever wanted, somebody to love me, my dad. I looked in the mirror and there was no soul behind my eyes. I was completely lost. So at that moment, I prayed to God that he would take control. I gave up all control and asked him, I welcomed him into my life and asked him to please fix what was wrong. Three days later, I was arrested and taken to the uh, federal jail in Waco. When I was arraigned, I was looking at 25 years to life. I never forget, I came home and I just felt like a changed man. I mean, I knew that there was this being, Jesus, that was over me, that was watching me this whole time. And, uh, and knowing that that's the father that I was looking for, that I needed the love from. It wasn't my earthly father. And uh, knowing that that he loves me unconditionally. And it's hard to say that you find your joy in prison, but I honestly did. I grew so much with Christ and with God, and I learned really what Christ was and how precious I was to him. And that no matter what I had done or what had been done to me, that that was all cleared and clean, and that I was white and fresh and clean and a new creature. After eight months of jail, I was released. Um, time served. In 2007, I had been a part of Celebrate Recovery here at Temple Bible Church, and I also met a guy that I really wanted to be a part of my life. And so I invited Pat to come to celebrate recovery with me. I was so fearful when I met Pat that I would never be able to have children. After everything that I had done to my body and how bad I abused it and that I still was uh, thinking I was undeserving. But our God doesn't work that way. And because he doesn't give us what, is, what we deserve. He blessed me with the ability to give Pat two children. Um, and that was one of the most powerful parts to me. And it helped me to realize that we, God doesn't give us what, a de what we deserve. Because if that were it, we'd be dead. He uh, gives us what He loves. And that's joy and faith and hope. Pat and Amanda Pratt are here this morning. Would you all stand up and just let's thank them for sharing their story with us.
It's so amazing how God has brought you all together. They have a beautiful family now. They're married, so um, we praise God for that. Um, as we move into a time of just worship again, and, and as we sing one last song, I want to just invite anyone this morning, if you're someone that you're sensing the call, the same call that Matthew sensed, and you're sensing the call of Christ in your life, and my prayer is that you would actually get up and follow him in the same way that Matthew did, in the same way that they did. And so this morning, I'm going to encourage you, just while you're during the song at your seat, Romans 10, 9, and 10 talks about confession with the mouth. If, if you're sensing the call of Christ in your life this morning, you want to put your life in his hands, I'm going to ask you this morning just to pray and tell him that. Confess that to him this morning. Now, I'm also going to encourage you at some point um, today to tell someone, I would love if you to came down front and you told me, and I'll pray with you down front if that's something that you'd like to do.